One of my favorite books is the book of Titus because uh, it is so practical and so <coughs> helpful. And um, as I was talking to, to Scott, I, I told him I, I, was, I would probably do an overview of the book. And as I was going through my notes and everything, uh, I decided not to do that, but to focus on probably the most influential passage of the book for me personally. Um, since I only get to preach uh, to you one time, <laughs> I, I'm going to make the most of it and, and share what really has impacted my life uh, the most from the book of Titus. And it is really about the aspect of the grace of God teaching us certain things. Now, I didn't know what you were doing in Sunday school. I didn't know about uh, you doing the changed into his image. And as I'm listening to that first session, I'm going, wow, maybe I shouldn't have, have chosen this passage because it is, it's right down the line of what we heard in Sunday school. And the focus of this passage can really change our perspective, it can change our thinking, and ultimately, hopefully, it will change our actions into a life that is pleasing to the Lord, but also profitable to one another. And so uh, with that, I want to read this passage of Scripture once again and to kind of give you the backdrop <coughs> of the book of Titus. It was written to a church planner, and Paul left Titus in Crete, which is a, a real deplorable situation. Cretans were known as liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. <laughs> so lazy gluttons at that. And so they're not the most proactive people, you know. Uh, they're kind of laid back and they just want to take advantage of each other. And Paul says, no, you need to stay there and you need to put in order the things that are lacking and then appoint qualified leadership for the church. And he sets out that, that criteria. Chapter 2, in the beginning, he says, uh, the way you're to go about doing this is just speak sound doctrine. And it's with this sound doctrine that people can be transformed and lives changed into men and women who reflect the character of God and can be beneficial to one another that causes growth in the body. So that's kind of the stage, and he gives some real practical advice, and he says, preach sound doctrine, teach it, talk about it, so that the older men can become like this, the older women can be like this, the younger women can do this, and the, uh, the young men can do this. And by the way, you need to show yourself to be the same. <laughs> and that's kind of where we are in chapter 2. And then he gives some practical advice to, um, to servants or to bond servants, to employees, if you will, and says, be the right kind of employee. And the whole purpose of it all is so that we might adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The whole reason is to reflect what Christ is really like in our workplace, in our home place, in the places where we play and just relax. 
we need to be reflecting Christ in all that we do. And when we come to chapter 11, it starts out with this little word for. He's given us the reason why we ought to live a Christ-like life. What's the reason? Why should we invest all this time and energy, blood, sweat, and tears to make changes in our life? Why? He tells us in this passage. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, (coughs) the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I like the the New King James version of that where it says to purify for himself his own special people. I just like that idea of being special to God. And he redeemed us so that we wouldn't live lawlessly but that we would live as though we were special to God. I just look at that and I just go, God's grace is truly amazing. And if we can get a handle on God's amazing grace, it can transform our lives. It can transform the way we think, the way we act, the way we feel. It will transform everything about our life how we relate to one another, how we even relate to ourselves. How many of you ever beat up on yourself? I'm the world's worst at beating up myself and woe is me, you know. I feel like Eeyore a lot of the times, you know. Woe is me, I think I'm going to go eat some worms. You know, I mean, just really beat myself up. Then I come back to the grace of God and I'm just blown away by His amazing grace. But you know, His amazing grace teaches us certain things. I want you to realize the central theme of the book of Titus is in order to develop godly character in the midst of an ungodly world, we must put into practice the biblical truth we are learning. It's not enough to know the truth. we got to put the truth we know into practice. That's the only way that true biblical life change takes place is you got to put into practice what you're learning. It's no good if we don't practice it. We can have all the right answers, but if we don't put it into practice, what good is it? It's not. (laughs) It's not good for anything. So knowing the truth is not where it's at. It's practicing the truth. So you'll see how this passage fits in to that overall theme of the book of Titus. In order to develop godly character in the midst of an ungodly world, we must put into practice the biblical truth we're learning. Now the main theme of this particular passage, 11 down to uh, verse 14, is that the grace of God teaches us 
that we have been blessed to be a blessing to others. He talks about being zealous for good works because of what the grace of God teaches us. We need to be reflecting Jesus Christ in all of our other relationships. That's what he's saying. When we talk about good works, God is the ultimate good, correct? So anything we do that reflects Him is a good work. Anything we do that reflects God is a good thing. That's a good work. And it's beneficial to other people. You look back in chapter 1, there were some what we would call scallywags in Arkansas. (laughs) Not very pleasant people. And it says that they were unfit for any good work. In other words, everything they did, it didn't have a desired effect because they were not seeking to reflect Jesus Christ. They were trying to put people under their thumb and say, if you don't believe the way I do, boom, there you have it. (laughs) No grace, just law. And Paul is telling Titus, you need to understand grace if you're going to have an impact on people's lives. So the key thought here is that since God's grace teaches us that we have been blessed to be a blessing, then we should be zealous for good works. That is, those things that are in harmony with the character of God. We need to be zealous. In other words, we need to be eager waiting just with anticipation for an opportunity to reflect Christ. Do we get up that way? So often I get up, I have my quiet time, and man, I am ready to live for the Lord. And then I sit down at the breakfast table. (laughs) And sometimes it's not even through breakfast that I blow it. And I'm going, wait a minute, I just had this wonderful time with the Lord. Now I'm in the real world, in my home. Why is it that I struggle? If it wasn't for people, I could really live the Christian life. (laughs) But really, it's living the Christian life among each other that really makes the difference. And I tell you, (coughs) I've prayed, I've worked, I've struggled, and a lot of times it's just realizing I'm trying too hard to do things in my own strength. And I really don't believe God's grace is sufficient to make up for my mistakes. And so I had to keep coming back to the grace of God. I mean, you ask my kids. They know I'm not perfect. You ask the people that attend our church. They know I'm not perfect. You ask my wife, she can point out where I'm not perfect, all right? I'm not perfect. I stand in need of the grace of God on a moment-by-moment basis. And if I can understand my need of grace, maybe it will help me be gracious to other people who are struggling with the same things. And so Paul's address to us here is very, very important. 
really, there's two questions that he asks. How, or I want to ask, number one is how does God's grace teach us? And then what is it that God's grace teaches us? So the first thing, how does God's grace teach us? By giving us an example to follow. Notice, for the grace of God has appeared. In other words, He has appeared with a purpose. He has appeared so that He can demonstrate the grace of God, which brings salvation to all men. Not because man was worthy, but in that while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. You see grace? Not because they merited it, but because He just wanted to do it. That's just the kind of God He is. That's the kind of Savior we have. He longs to give and give and give and then give some more. That's really what grace is. It's just giving what people need in order to reflect God. That's what grace does. And Christ is the ultimate example. God's grace appeared to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I like Zodiades' um, definition of grace. Notice what he says. Grace is the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the beauty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. Why does he do it? Just because he wants to. That's the kind of God we we serve. He is gracious. That's why He extends grace. It's His character. We serve a gracious God. The world in which we live, this ungodly world that we find ourselves in, they have a distorted view of God. How many of them think that God is actually a mean God? How many of you heard uh, this question? If God is so loving and kind then why does He allow so much suffering to happen to such good people? Have you heard that or something like that? What what are they doing? They're saying God's really not good. He's actually mean because He lets bad things happen to good people. I find that very amusing because my Bible teaches that God's the one that's good and man is the one that's evil. (laughs) My question is why does God being righteous and just, allow such good things to happen to such rotten people. That's what I struggle with. The only answer that that comes to my attention is because He's gracious. Just because He wants to. It's not because we earn it. It's not because we deserve it. It's just because God is gracious. And that's why we can praise His lovely name. Well, in the text, it says that the grace of God not only brings salvation, but notice, it trains us. This word training or teaching is used of activity directly toward the moral and spiritual nature and training of the child to influence conscience, will, and action. Now, there's two Greek words for teach. 
One has to do with, <coughs> excuse me, with what is taught, the content, all right? That's not the word here. The word here is for the influence of the teacher, all right? It's the impact that the teacher has on the student. Now, in the year 12, be like year 13 here, my last year of high school, I had a U.S. history teacher, and uh, he was he was a black man, Afro-American um, individual, and he was a tough teacher. He would throw erasers at people that fell asleep in his class, and he would he would say, "Listen, my class is too important for you to 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 go to sleep in. You can stand up in the back, but you're not going to go to sleep." And, you know, after he threw a couple of erasers, people didn't sleep in his class anymore. It was amazing. He was tough. And he expected his students to learn. And he helped them as much as he could. Well, my locker was right outside of Mr. Hill's classroom. And I will never forget my senior year, almost towards the end, he would come out and he said, Scholarberry, I want you to... And I'm going, what? Scholarberry? <laughs> I'm nowhere near scholar. <laughs> but he put that in my mind that I was actually smarter than I thought I was. And he said, you know, if you study, if you apply yourself, you could be on the honor roll. I didn't even know what an honor roll was. But he infused confidence in me. He let me know that he thought I could do it. He influenced me to give it a go. And when I went to university, uh, I was on probation for the first two years. <laughs> that proves that I was not a scholar. <laughs> then I met Laurie. And she taught me how to learn. She taught me how to study. I mean, one of the things while we were dating, I mean, we dated for four years, and she said, Barry, if we're going to see each other, we, we, we need to go to the library. And I said, well, what are we going to do there? I mean, she goes, study? And I went, oh, what a novel idea. <laughs> yeah. And so she helped me learn how to study. And lo and behold, my last year of university, I was on the honor roll. Again, I didn't even know what an honor roll was. I'm going, where did that come from? It came from a, from a teacher that infused confidence in me, but it also was helped and aided by someone who gave me some practical tips on how to study. And then I was able to achieve something that I never thought I could possibly achieve. The influence of the teacher is what's in view here. Now we could look at Genesis chapter 12 verses <coughs> 1 and 3 where Abraham was blessed by God and God expected Abraham to be a blessing to others. And you chart the history of Abraham and you see how many blessings have come through Abraham and the nation of Israel. It is amazing how much they continue to bless the nations of the world through their study, through their 
inventions, through their achievements. But you know, it hit me that Abraham, it says, was blessed by God and that he would bless other nations. That in in him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we know that ultimately, that blessing is found in Jesus Christ. But I think the principle there is, is very clear. When we have been blessed, there is a purpose, there is an expectation associated with that blessing. Is that we will take that blessing and turn around and seek to be a blessing to others. We're blessed to be a blessing. And we need to look for opportunities to be a blessing to other people. Not because they earn it, not because they deserve it, just because we've been blessed. That's the reason. The expectation of God's grace, I put this in your notes, is that God expects the recipient of His grace to reflect His grace to others in their character, in their conduct, and in their conversation. Again, verse 10, we do these in order to adorn. Um, it, it, it really is the word accessorize. You know how a lady will have accessories, you know, a necklace or a bracelet or a pendant to accessorize. I mean, I have four daughters, so I know what accessorizing is, all right? That's what we're to be doing to the grace of God. We are to adorn it. We're to adorn the doctrine of God. We're to accessorize it. We're to make it look pretty. We're, we're to make it, we're, we're to draw people's attention by our accessorizing to the gospel of His grace. Now, secondly, I want to <coughs> ask, uh, just to go over to chapter 3. I want you to see the example <coughs> of God's grace. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I don't know about you, but that paints a pretty deplorable picture of what it says we were like. We once were like this. Can you relate to that? But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is, tr is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I love that passage. It illustrates the grace of God that has appeared. 
It illustrates what our salvation involves. I'm reminded of a story about Billy Graham when uh, it had to be early in his ministry because uh, he was driving and he was speeding in the south. And so uh, the policeman said, well, you're going to have to go before the judge. And he goes, ah, all right. And he goes and the judge says, how do you plead, guilty or not guilty? He said, guilty, your honor. Ten miles over the speed limit. All right. Either ten days in jail or a $10 fine. And I'm going, $10 fine? Man, I got a ticket. It wasn't $10. (laughs) But this judge then pulled out his wallet, took a $10 note out, gave it to the bailiff, and said, punishment's been paid in full. Now, would you want to go to me and let's go down to the restaurant and I'll buy you a steak? And so then he he exercises grace, (laughs) not just mercy in paying the penalty, but exercises grace in buying him a steak dinner. Well, God has done much, much more. He's made us heirs with Christ through this great salvation that He's given us because He just wanted to. Amazing, amazing grace indeed. Well, what does God's grace teach us? Well, back in verse 12, it says that training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. First of all, we see that God's grace teaches us to die to self. Die to self. That's what He teaches us. First of all, we are to renounce or just say no, if you will, to ungodliness. Ungodliness is an irreverence towards God which governs one's attitude toward every aspect of life. In other words, it's living as though God doesn't even exist. Does that describe our world? People living as though God doesn't even exist. He says, be careful, believer. Just like the world is this way, you need to be on guard and you need to renounce it. You need to deny yourself this kind of a mindset. You need to restrain yourself in this area. Don't ever think God does not exist. Let His existence permeate your thinking so that you would never do anything to displease Him. Because how great He is. It's a real tendency. And it's because we still have that depraved nature. I wish His salvation would have removed it from the get-go. But He didn't. He says, no, this is part of your glorious hope that you will be freed even from the very presence of sin. But right now you're struggling because you still have that nature. And you need to learn to say no to ungodliness, to thinking 
that God is really not aware of your attitudes, actions, conversations. He is aware. He does know. This is kind of associated with the fear of God in the Old Testament. The second thing is that we are to renounce worldly lust. Again, just say no. It's kind of like the, what was it, the D.A.R.E. program. I think you had the D.A.R.E. program in your public schools here. We had it over in the States. And one of the slogans was just say no to drugs. Just say no. If someone gives you uh, an opportunity, just say no. So we would have the kids practice saying no. You know, hey, you want some pot? No. You want some this? No. I got good at it. I loved saying no to my friends who wanted me to do drugs, wanted me to do alcohol, you know, giving it to me free. No. Renounce it. Just say no. This worldly lust is a longing or strong desire, especially for what is forbidden. If we're going to exercise what the grace of God is teaching us, we need to realize that we do have a gravity of depravity living within us. And it, and it exercises us a gravitational pull to keep us walking in the flesh. And just like we learned in Sunday school, don't walk in the flesh, mortify the flesh, renounce it. Don't give in to those self-centered desires. Renounce it. This is what the world is really like. <clears throat> they want to live estranged from God. They don't want God in their life because He makes them feel guilty. He makes them feel shameful. He produces fear because of the judgment. You know what? Shame, guilt, and fear are very good motivators. <laughs> That's a good thing. But our world says, no, no, no. That gives you a poor self-image. No, it gives you a proper self-image. We have done things that we should feel ashamed of. We should feel guilt over. We should feel afraid. Because that's what sin does. And Paul's admonition is to restrain yourself. Renounce these things. Just say no. Now in that right column, I want you to realize that God's grace teaches us to put into practice the right restraints. The right restraints. We have to restrain ourselves. And that's what the grace of God teaches us to do. Now the second thing that God's grace teaches us to do is to live for God. To die to self, but then to live for God. We are to live self-controlled lives. In other words, we're to, um, the grace of God <coughs> teaches us to have the right thinking. So the right restraints, but here we see we need to have the right thinking. This word self-controlled, uh, in the New King James, it's, 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 uh, translated soberly. 
we're to live soberly. Now, think about a drunk man. He's drunk. He's intoxicated. He wobbles when he walks. <laughs> and sometimes he stumbles. He is off-balanced because he is inebriated. Here, Paul says, stay in the right mindset so you can be balanced. Don't go to extremes. Avoid extremes. Stay balanced. That's the concept. Self-controlled. Be balanced. Don't get out of balance. Don't go to extremes. If you do, you lean too far one way. (laughs) You're liable to fall off. And then you're going to say, well, I tried it and it didn't work for me. Well, wait a minute. You tried one aspect and you you went to an extreme and you fell over. Come back to God's Word. Find the balance and walk with that balanced perspective. Right thinking. But then we also see that God's grace teaches us to live upright lives or righteously. This is right actions. Thinking the right thoughts, but also doing the right thing. So we have the right restraints in place. We have the right thinking in order. And now we can then live right. We can have the right actions. This word upright (coughs) refers to doing what is right from God's perspective. So do you see why we have to think the right thoughts? We have to know what God's thoughts are in order to live them out. So that's why we have to be men and women of the Word. But then thirdly, we see that we are to live godly lives. Um, need to understand what this word godly means. A lot of times we think it, it means actions, you know, that we're reflecting God. And in a sense, it it does end there. But it starts in a different place. It starts with that internal thinking because godliness is a genuine reverence towards God which governs one's attitude toward every aspect of life. It is that reverential fear of God. It's not a fear that God's going to zap me if I get out of line. It's a fear of disappointing this God that I love. This God that has done so much for me. It is a fear that I might displease Him. That's the idea. Not that He's going to zap me over the head with a club. Here we see that we're to have the right motives. The right motives. This reverential fear of God in our hearts. Solomon said that this fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. Later he says it's the beginning of knowledge. If you're going to get anything, get this. Fear God. Respect Him. Reverence Him in everything you do. (coughs) Story is told of uh, uh, C.H. Spurgeon where him and Joseph Parker had uh, churches in London in the 19th century. And Spurgeon heard that in uh, one of Parker's messages, he he was commenting on, on the poor conditions of his orphanage. Well, 
the way it came to Spurgeon was that he was disparaging uh, Spurgeon's orphanages and saying that they were just in deplorable state. He was just really trying to bring out how poor these orphans were and how they needed help. But it got misconstrued. And so when Spurgeon heard that, well, he he actually mentioned um, Joseph Parker in a message in a disparaging way saying, you know, what do you think you are? <laughs> and it got in the newspapers. Well, a lot of people went over to Joseph Parker's church <laughs> to find out what he was going to say in response to what Spurgeon had said. So their numbers grew exponentially because of this anticipation. You know what Joseph Parker did? He said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. In other words, all his people came here. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. I found that very amusing. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You had given me not what I deserved, but what I needed. See, that's grace in action. Giving people what they need not what they deserve. Notice the next phrase in this passage. He says, in the present age, waiting, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The third thing that the grace of God teaches us is to look forward to Christ's second coming. This gives us the right expectations. So... <coughs> When we live with anticipation that Christ is going to come, then we try to keep our house in order. That's what Jesus was saying in the context of the end times. He says, watch, pray, be ready. Make sure that you're ready for when Christ comes on a moment-by-moment basis. You see, the grace of God teaches us that the crosswork of Christ is not all there is to it. There's coming a glorious future, and we need to look forward with great anticipation to what Christ has in store for us. This looking forward has the idea of confident expectation with a sense of anticipation. Do we wake up that way, anticipating that this could be the day? What if it's today? How exciting life would be if we looked at life going, wow, this could be the last day before Christ comes back. What would I do differently if I knew Christ was coming back? Well, let's live like that every day. Live with a sense of anticipation and longing for that to happen. It's interesting to note that this is one of those great Christological passages where he says uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Calls Jesus Christ God. Jesus Christ is God. And He's coming back 
for us. What a glorious future we have. What great expectations we have. And then finally, we see um, that God's grace teaches us to look backwards to Christ's cross work. All right? We're to look forward to Christ's second coming, but we're to look backwards to Christ's cross work. This gives us the right perspective. The right perspective. First of all, Jesus Christ gave Himself for us. He had a twofold purpose in doing this. First of all, it was to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us from all lawlessness. This idea of redeem has to do with paying a ransom. He paid the price that we couldn't pay because our sin debt was too costly. The wages of sin is death, right? We die because of our sins. He died for our sins to deliver us from our sins. You see, He's the only one that didn't have to die for His sins because He never committed them. That's why He was the only sacrifice that was sufficient to die for our sins. Not because of them, but for them. On behalf of us. That's amazing grace. He died the death we could not die. And He provided the salvation that we could not achieve. We couldn't deliver ourselves. We were in too deplorable of a state. But Jesus Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. And He says, you can live in victory because of my great salvation. The second thing is not only did He give Himself for us to redeem us, but also to purify for Himself His own special people. A people of His own possession. A special people. To to purify means to cleanse from the pollution and guilt of sin. In other words, He didn't just release us from the bondage of sin. He says, now that I've released you, I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to scrub you up. I'm going to make you shiny and clean. And people are going to look at you and say, wow, you're nothing like what you used to be. You're the shiny version. Whereas before, you were just the dark, dirty version. That's God's amazing grace. And God's grace teaches us to look back, remember what it cost in order to redeem you and to purify you. It took the cross work of Christ. He died in your place. He suffered for you so that you would not have to suffer. He took the punishment on Himself. Now this idea of being a special people has to do with uh, it refers to God's chosen people in whom He has a special interest, one which exceeds His common concern for mankind in general. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel good. I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> Knowing that God has 
a view towards me as being special to him. Not ordinary, but special. I don't know about you, but I, that's overwhelming. To think that God views me as being a special person to him. I don't want to hurt or displease this person who views me as so special that he would give his life for. That's what the grace of God teaches us. Well, what is expected of Christ's special people? He tells us they're expected to be zealous for good works. Zealous, eager, looking for opportunities to reflect God's goodness to everyone that they come across. This word zealous means to eagerly desire something. Now, when we were on furlough, uh, you know, when you're here for four years, five years, you miss certain things. And so when we hit the ground in the United States, I had an eager desire for barbecue. Because <laughs> I grew up in Texas, and, and I just have a real you know, desire for that. My girls don't have that. They didn't grow up where I grew up. But I had that desire, so I had barbecue <laughs> every chance I could. We had some special restaurants we wanted to go to. We were zealous to go there because we missed it. We were looking for those opportunities. We even had a book that had, it was called Next Exit. And as we're going down the motorway, I would say, Laurie, can you check and see if there's a cracker barrel at the next exit? And so she would say, well, exit 54. <laughs> so we would stop at Cracker Barrel because we were zealous to go there. We were anticipating, we were longing for it. We had a desire to do it. Do we have that kind of desire that we're looking for opportunities to do good things for people because God has done so much good for us? That's what being blessed to be a blessing really looks like. Again, these good works are anything that's in harmony with the character of God. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 14. I want to close with this. In verse 14, he says, And let our people learn. Okay? So this is a process. Learn. To devote themselves. In other words, here's your purpose for living. <laughs> okay? Devote themselves to good works. <clears throat> so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Look for opportunities to do good. To exercise the grace of God because the grace of God has been given to you. So in conclusion, we see that since God's grace teaches us to die to self, to live for God, to look forward to Christ's second coming and to look back to the crosswork of Christ, we should be motivated to graciously step out in faith and do good works. 
Remember, in the Christian life, good works flow out of a personal, progressive relationship with Christ. Good works are a reflection of an inward work of God that has taken place in the life of a believer that has changed his life forever. So when someone does a good work, all we can truly say is praise God from whom all blessings flow. God's grace teaches us that we have been blessed to be a blessing to other people. So as we leave today, be gracious in everything you do to everyone you meet. Be gracious because God is gracious.